Welcome to the She Runs It podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole DeBoom. And Sarah Ratzloff. We are two successful female business owners who have found strength, confidence, and community through fitness. And we want to share that gift with you. Join us as we talk about what really matters to active women. We can't wait to hang out with you. Now let's get started. Wow. Hey, it's me, Nicole. We're back. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Nicole. I am so excited about uh, our podcast today. I am too. Our podcast is amazing. It's fun when you and I talk. I mean, we have great conversations, but it's often even more fun when we bring on amazing guests like today's. What do you think? I feel the same. And especially with a topic that matters so much to um, our ladies. And I'm not sure we ever really, I'm not even sure we're aware of it. Um, much less, you know, spend a lot of talking. Um, just really excited n- just to even have the conversation today, but to actually have an expert who can advise us on it. That's even better. It's not just us chatting about it. We have someone who can help. It's yes. Great. So let's talk about what this topic is and who our guest is today. Um, sitting here with us virtually online on Zoom is Dr. Candice Setti, author of a book called The Self-Sabotage Behavior Workbook. Now you know the topic. It's about self-sabotage. The book is a step-by-step program to conquer negative thoughts, boost confidence, and learn to believe in yourself. And I might also add, love yourself while you're at it, right? Mm-hmm. So welcome to the show, Dr. Seti. I think we might just call you Candice today. How are you doing? Good. Good. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. I'm happy to be here and to talk about this topic as well. Well, the first thing, so this is really close to both Sarah's and my heart's because we're both female entrepreneurs. We both know what a struggle it can be to, you know, take a vision and move it forward. And we don't have any time to deal with the bullshit of self-sabotage. We just don't. Yet we sometimes still do it because we're all freaking human. Mm -hmm. Um, So I thought maybe we could just start by sort of laying the groundwork and talking about what is self-sabotage. Sure. Um, Well, I like to dumb it down and make it really simple and just say that self-sabotage is engaging in behaviors that actively stand in your way, right? Like saying, I want to achieve something and I'm going to engage in behavior that actively prevents me from achieving that or maybe even moves me further away from that. It's essentially like saying, I want something and I'm going to make sure I don't get it. And behaviors that meet that criteria essentially are what we're talking about when we talk about self-sabotage. So very simple, just standing in your own way. God, you know, I think we can personally relate, but even if you're like, oh, I never do that. You, we all know someone often. And and I would say BS because everybody does it in some way or another. Everybody does it. (laughs) And it's usually not a question of whether or not you do it. It's a question of how frequently you do it and how impactful it is because for some people it's it's minor it's benign it's it's not very significant for other people it really does stand in the way of of letting them achieve what they want um Sarah, so what were you thinking <laughs> well i was wondering you know when you say it out loud right it seems well why would you do that yeah you know? why would you stand <laughs> in your own way like uh-huh. oh, we, we work so hard and we you know, set these goals. And it's like, why would you 
purposely stand in your way, yet that's what happens over and over. So is there, and I think this happens specifically to what, not that men don't, you said everybody does it, yeah. but I think women do this more um, than men, um, than men do it. Is there a re like, what is the reason from your research? Why do we, why do we self-sabotage? Well, there's not just one reason. There's a lot of reasons. There's so many factors that go into this. And I actually have like, I think four chapters in the book devoted to the answering that question. Why? So I'll try and sum up in the interest so of it's not that simple. <laughs> like one answer. I, I mean, I mean, there's so many factors, right? There's, there's, there's our thinking errors and the way we're, we're habitually taught to think in certain terms that distort the truth. There's the impact of anxiety. There's the impact of self-esteem and how that ties into things and our, our just general belief in ourselves and what we're deserving of. There's, um, you know, the impact of comfort and our, drive as human beings to stay in our comfort zone and not push ourselves into places where we're uncomfortable. But, you know, at, at its root core, if you wanted to make it simple and really drill it down to something, I would say it's rooted in fear. Um, and that fear can come in a lot of different ways. It can be fear of success. It can be fear of failure. It can simply be fear of change, which are, are all things that are very, very deeply rooted in when I talk about that, people kind of think it's odd, right? Like, like, why would you fear success, right? Success is what you want. Why would anybody fear that? But there are so many things that go into it, right? If you, if you have low self-esteem, you may feel you're not worthy of that success. You may struggle with imposter syndrome, right? Where you're questioning whether you're really capable or, or feeling like a fraud. Um, tied into fear of success is kind of this now what effect which is the idea of, okay, so I've wanted this thing forever. If I get it, first of all, then what? What do I do then? What do I focus on? Where do I apply my efforts? But also, I've put all of my energy and effort into achieving this thing and, and thought this is what's going to make me happy. And what happens if I get it and it doesn't actually make me happy? Or I'm not actually getting what I want. And that seems almost scarier than not achieving that thing. So people will sabotage themselves to avoid having to face that. Um, and then on the other side of the coin, you have kind of fear of failure, which again, people think is sort of a funny thing because self-sabotage in, in essence is a way to cause failure, right? So why would somebody self-sabotage and cause failure if failure is the thing that they fear? But really it comes down to control. Um, you know, both failure and self-sabotage are going to lead to the same outcome, but one of those lets you be in control of that outcome, right? If you fail a test, we'd much rather say we failed because we didn't study than be caught off guard by that failure. We'd also, we also feel like we're able to protect our ego that way, right? Because it's not about us as a person, it's about a behavior. I just didn't study. It's not that I'm dumb. It's not that I'm incapable. I just right. didn't study, right? So we can protect ourselves that way by creating the failure, even though that failure is what we fear. So all of those fears, and then, and then like I mentioned, fear of change, right? Uh, you know, as human beings, we do not like change. We like, we like what we know. We like our comfort zone. We don't like to change. And, and achieving what we want almost always means change. And so those two things kind of fight against each other. And we have this, it's called the approach avoidance conflict, where 
you know, approaching something and avoiding it both have reinforcers associated with them. And so sometimes we'll choose the one that doesn't have any change associated with it, which is just staying where we are. Can I, can I ask for a little <laughs> more background on your journey to how you became both passionate about this topic and an expert? Did you go through all of these things you've talked about? <laughs> well, certainly, as I said, everybody self-sabotages. I'm not immune from that, just like anybody else is not immune from that. Um, my, my focus on this area actually kind of came about so I, I'm, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I have a private practice and I have specialized in working with um, individuals who have struggled with weight loss and weight management um, who are looking to kind of break their dependence on diets and learn to manage their weight in a healthy, more sustainable way. And, you know, I got into that field essentially through my own experience with weight loss and my own struggles. And what I realized in my work and in my own personal work on in that area is that, you know, everyone who struggles with weight loss or weight management, they, they don't struggle because they don't know how to be healthy, right? I mean, most everybody knows like uh, apple is healthier than a cookie, right? And, and we're still choosing the cookie. So the struggle isn't about knowledge. The struggle is about self-sabotage. So my focus on weight management really was just a specific application of addressing self-sabotage. And even with those weight management clients, what we would end up doing is transitioning, transitioning to addressing self-sabotage in all their other areas of life. Um, because as I talked about with somebody just the other day, right, you are who you are, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you're still the same person. And if you're self-sabotaging, you're self-sabotaging here and here and here and here. So in essence, I've been kind of focused on this topic for some time. It's just sort of through that process that I realized it and realized how applicable it was to everybody else. Um, and so over time, my practice has morphed a little bit where, you know, it's kind of opened up to the idea of self-sabotage as opposed to being specifically applied to the weight management population. You know, I think this kind of goes back to Sarah's question of why are women more prone to this? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think men also have eating and weight issues, but I think this is one of the big hot spots for women. Yeah. So I totally yeah. get that. And it's all tied up around self-confidence, self-esteem, self-love. So and, I mean, and yeah. overthinking. <laughs> um, oh, I talk women, about, women oh. overthink things. <laughs> is, that, is that news to you? Very surprising. <laughs> <laughs> well, I talk about like these, I have these identified these nine different self-sabotage styles in my book. And one of them that I identify is the overthinker. Um, that person who thinks everything to death and in a way that that kind of puts extreme emphasis on the negative, where even something small can turn into this, you know, spiral of anxious thoughts. And ultimately, over time, when you engage in this behavior, it, it strips you of your confidence, it creates constant self-doubt, um, you know, over-focuses you on the negative and ultimately becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? And women are significantly more prone to overthinking than men. I mean, and that's, that's research-based stuff. I don't have, obviously, the stats in front of me, but I think it's something like over 60% of women who admit to being kind of paralyzed by overthinking on a regular basis. And that's just 
who admit to it, right? I mean, and who are aware of it. So who knows how big that number actually is. But I see overthinking being a huge factor that ties into self-sabotage with women. And then, as you mentioned, self-esteem ties in there too, right? There's there's always a little bit of that insecurity. Um, there's always a little bit of the, the comparison to men factor that comes into play. And, you know, ultimately the self-questioning, the am I deserving, am I worthy, all of that stuff that comes into play. And you see that a lot more with women as well. Could we talk through some of the nine different profile categories? So sure. I'm sure <laughs> people listening are going to be like, I am that one. Like you kind of know right <laughs> yeah. away where you land. Yeah. And maybe we'll give some examples too as we go, but let's just roll with it. Sure. Um, I'm, I might forget some of them as we go through. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the overthinker, as I already mentioned, um, the one that is the most relatable to people that I talk about most frequently is the procrastinator um, because everyone does that, what you're doing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, cause everybody knows what a procrastinator is, even if they don't do that. Right. They, they can relate to the concept of somebody who puts things off, waits till the last minute. Um, and a lot of people don't get why that's self-sabotage. Um, because procrastinators usually will tell you, I work best under pressure. I do my best work at the last minute. And so they justify that behavior and therefore claim that it's not self-sabotage. But really, if you look at what that behavior is and what that behavior does is it wastes time. It creates a lot of unproductive time. And then there in that, it sets them up to believe that that's the only way they can achieve. And so I use that example of, let's say somebody has a, a presentation they need to give next week at work they'll wait to the last minute to start putting that presentation together. And they think that's good. I need that time crunch pressure thing. But I always say, what would have happened if you did that a week earlier? Then would you have had the ability to go back over the course of the week and edit it and practice it and think about what might have been applicable in that scenario to the people you're presenting to and added more and tweaked it and, and put all this effort into it that you don't have time. You literally don't have time for when you're saving it to the last minute. So procrastination behaviors absolutely are a form of self-sabotage. And, and a lot of people don't believe that. So yeah. I, I have to, one of the things I've discovered about myself over time, because I've, I've definitely been a procrastinator um, in, in the past. I mean, of course I don't do that. <laughs> Look, okay, that's, that could be like another hour to go into. But um, I would always find that... Um, I was uncomfortable with my work or let's say it was a paper or a report or a presentation. Right. And I could, I, this isn't good enough. And it's, it's, you know, what if I don't do well, what, you know, and so it sort of allow um, that, that time frame. you know, you have to have it delivered by this time mm -hmm. to allow me to, it was a coping mechanism so that yeah. I didn't have to, I couldn't think about whether it was good enough or I was smart enough or, you know, whatever that was um, because the time would force me yeah. and I would just have to turn it in, you know? So, so it almost created a distraction for you from all of those other thoughts, right? It did. I, I couldn't, I couldn't worry about it anymore. And, and so it's um, that's, it's, I've had to learn about that over time. And to what you said, like, 
I've had to set more deadlines for myself earlier. So then I have, because I found, oh, well, if I actually get this done early, I have time to run it past other people or look at, but you know, that's comes with maturity and age. That's a really good example of a way to address that, right? You're still sort of working under pressure, working under a deadline, working under a time crunch. You're just controlling where that time crunch falls into place so that you're building in time on the other end of it. Yeah. A great approach to dealing with that. Well, I've got another example too, that I think a lot of people listening are training for races and events, you know, a Zuma event that might be coming up in person in the future. And in my two careers ago, I was a professional triathlete. And so I had to fit these workouts in every day. And I would many days, not every day, but many days find myself going, I'll just do this one later in the day. Mm -hmm. Like I would plan that I would do it in the morning, say, and then I would somehow find that some room needed to be vacuumed and I need to organize something. And then maybe I should get these emails done. And suddenly by the end of the day, I either went out and did like a sucky shortened version of the workout, or I might skip it. And, you know, then when you hit the starting line, And you stand there and you ask yourself, did I do everything I could to properly prepare for this race? There's that self-doubt that's like, well, you skipped some workouts or you, you know, you slacked on them. Yeah. So there's no reason I needed to procrastinate those workouts. I just did it sometimes. But what you see using that example, when you see that a lot of times the things that people will procrastinate on are things that they either don't want to do or feel really hard and they don't want to face that hard. They don't want to face that difficult thing. And, you know, if those workouts are like, this is going to be grueling. I don't know if I want to do that. And so, you know, one of the approaches, again, on on top of the, the idea that Sarah mentioned, another approach to dealing with procrastination is always starting your day with the hardest thing on your to-do list, whether that be from a workout standpoint, from, you know, I have this list at work of things I have to do. Because let's say you have a to-do list and there's 10 things on it. When we sit down to do it, we're going to be like, oh, that's easy. I'll do that. Oh, that's easy. I'll do that. And what happens at the end of the day is that hard one is still sitting there. And we keep putting it off and putting it off. But imagine if you started your day doing that one. Not only would it now be off your list and you'd feel this huge weight gone, but you feel great about yourself, right? You feel like, I did that awesome thing. I'm so cool. Yes, I feel good. I feel proud. And now everything else on my to-do list is easy and your outlook for the day is completely different because in the other scenario, that thing is just looming all day, all the time right here. And in this scenario, it's done by what, 10 Mm a.m. That's what I always find, you know, as I, as I put things off, um, is that the amount of mental space, I get so mad because it's, it feels like you never... Um, your to-do list is always too long. There's always this mental space being taken up by what, what you're supposed to be doing that you're not doing. So I like that idea of starting with the hardest. It feels so good to get it done. (laughs) I was just, I was like visual. I was like, Ooh, that would feel so good. Like Uh I I rocked it out today. Uh Yeah, exactly. Well, Well, I want to hear about some more of the styles because you said overthinkers Yeah. Um, so those are um, kind of in the in the category of self sabotage styles that create sort of self fulfilling prophecies. And the third one in that category is the assumer, 
which again, most people can relate to. This is, you know, somebody who's always predicting the future and ultimately acting on those predictions before they actually see if they come true, right? So they, they decide how they're going to feel, what's going to happen, how people are going to react. And as a result of that, it prevents them from taking action and, and keeps them stuck, right? Closes them off to new opportunities, never allows them to prove themselves wrong. And the example I always use with this one is, you know, somebody gets invited to a party and they say, oh, I'm not going to have any fun at that party. I'm not going to know anyone. Nobody's going to talk to me. So I'm just not going to go. And in that scenario in their head, the party would have been a negative thing. And so they choose not to go. And in their head now, they have avoided a negative thing. So they've done something good for themselves. And that's reinforcing that behavior because they've avoided the negative thing. But they never got to see if that thing was negative. So actually not experiencing something is reinforcing for them to continue that behavior. And so, you know, it sets you up to always be this way. And assuming is something, you know, everybody does all the time, mm-hmm. but not everybody is aware of how it comes into play from a self-sabotage standpoint, how it does um, prevent people from, you know, putting themselves into situations where they can grow, improve, change, succeed, or whatever it may be. And not everybody sees how that aspect of it is really a form of self-sabotage. Yeah. And it seems like also rooted back in what you originally said, which is kind of this idea of self-esteem, right? Hey, if I go, they won't like me. What I say Mm -hmm. isn't enough. I'm awkward. I'm like, um, as you were saying that, I'm like, oh yeah, I've, I've, I've had that conversation in my head before. Yeah. Yeah, no, we all have. Yeah, when I talk to people um, kind of in the career space or self-sabotaging in a, in a work environment career, assumption being an assumer is such a huge factor there because people do things like um, networking events, right? Um, nobody's going to want to talk to me. I don't have enough to share. You know, my information is boring or, you know, I'm not dynamic and engaging enough, so it's not going to be worth my time. Or you see people assuming by saying, I'm not going to get that job. So there's no point in applying and weeding themselves out instead of letting the hiring manager be the person that's weeding them out. Right. And this, this, this um, assuming behavior actively clearly limits their opportunities, right? If you are not applying to a job, you are not going to get it. That's just a fact, right? Um, At least if you're applying, you give yourself the opportunity, but the assumer tends to talk themselves out of even doing that. So it's, it's very much a self-sabotaging behavior. And again, like I mentioned, it creates the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? I'm not going to have one. Yeah. It's like the story that we weave for ourselves, right? Like we have a narrative about what our life is and who we are as a person, right? And how much of that is woven from, (laughs) from sabotaging things. Yeah. And the way we talk to ourselves, right? It's it's all, all tied into our self-talk. Fascinating. Yeah. So, um, well, cause I think you said there were nine types. Yeah. We maybe like talk about two more and sure. then I want to hear more about like how we kind of overcome this or how do you even know that you're, what are the signs that you're kind of <laughs> self-sabotaging? So, but what are like two others that, that um, so those are those three that I mentioned are all in the category of creating self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, one of the other categories is, um, behaviors that lower our self-worth or self-esteem. And the three that fall in there are the, um, the overindulger, the self-critic, and the perfectionist. Um, and again, most people can relate to one or the other in there, if not all of them. 
Um, but all of these about the perfectionist. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I mean, for my own personal, but I think so many women listening, um, especially when you're a, a runner or an athlete, you tend to be so many of the women that, that do the events that we do are, you know, career minded, um, achieving in so many areas and sort of this perfectionist piece well, that's what I was going to say when you're a runner and an athlete and also have a career and also are a wife and also are a mother and also run a household, right? It sets you up for this, this idea of being, being what I call super mom, right? Like a superhero that needs to do everything and do everything perfectly, right? The perfectionist has an ideal in mind for everything, right? A standard that they are always trying to meet and live up to, but the standard is impossible. It's, it's, it doesn't really exist in reality. And so the perfectionist never lives up to that standard. And you can imagine how that makes them feel, right? They feel like they're chronically a failure. They feel like they're never doing what they need to do. They are never achieving. They are never meeting their standard. And therefore, they're a screw up. They're a mistake. They're a failure. They're a problem. And so here's the self-criticism and self-attack that comes into play. And over time, this gradually does lower our self-worth and makes us feel just terrible about ourselves because we've created these unrealistic standards that we can't live up to. Um, so again, clearly you can see how, how that is definitely another form of self-sabotage. Yeah. You know, I would say it's also interesting for those who are moms to watch their children and see if they have any of these traits. My daughter has a lot of free-flowing, relaxed personality vibe, but she's a perfectionist in certain areas and I already see it in her. And I want to make sure that I don't, that I nurture these traits properly so that she doesn't fall down the rabbit hole of letting them lower her self-worth. Mm -hmm. Do you like have any thoughts or advice for that? Um, well, I mean, it is a rabbit hole. You're <laughs> absolutely right. Um, and there's, there's a couple pieces to this, you know, with almost all of the self-sabotage styles, but especially with the, the ones that lower our self-worth, our self-worth, confidence building is so important and such a valuable part of fighting this tendency. Um, but with the perfectionist in particular, um, you know, there, there's an all or nothing component to the perfectionist thinking, right? A very black and white standard of I'm either perfect or I'm a failure. And so really digging into that thinking style, that all or nothing thinking style, and helping them embrace the concept of the gray, right? Helping them embrace the idea that, okay, instead of zero and 100, maybe I can look at 80 and 20. And what does that look like, right? Here's this perfectionist standard. How can I lower that to something that's actually attainable, but I can still feel good about, as opposed to saying, I can't do this, so I'll just do nothing. And working on changing that thinking style to find a more rational approach a more rational goal because the idea here is not that you can't have goals that you can't want to achieve and do things and even do them well and do all of those things well but just not perfect right yeah. so i use i usually try and replace that word with with good or better as opposed to perfect and looking at how you can make that happen embracing the idea of being you know flossom so to speak right the oh, idea that, that you're you're you can be flawed and still be awesome right you don't have to do everything perfectly to be great, to be worthy, to be valuable, 
um, and to feel good about yourself. You just have to do things well and maybe better, but not perfect. And just backing off of that idea, just a tiny, tiny bit. I remember um, early in my career at Disney sitting with one of my leaders, you know, and I would, I mean, I would just throw everything into what I was doing, right? Like, working late nights and, you know, just really outworking the majority of people. And then like want, because I wanted everything to be so perfect. And I remember him saying like, you know, everything doesn't have to be perfect always. Like some things can just be good. Yeah. <laughs> I, remember thinking, like, I was like, what does that mean? Like, what does that mean to just do something like good you know and over time again age and maturity I was like oh okay so some things you can just kind of check it in clock it in you know and it's fine and and I'm still alive and I'm still okay and all you know but but the things that really it's like beginning to understand the things that matter some things you do want to be perfect or you want to do very well but that doesn't have to be everything everything right yeah Yeah. this like idea of yeah matters more Well, and even even within that, looking at what the idea of perfect is, because, you know, I, I always ask people, if you've ever known somebody who who appeared perfect, and I always say appeared perfect because 100% guaranteed they were not because nobody is. But how do we feel about people that appear perfect, right? I mean, we don't always like those people. We're a little intimidated by those people. We're a little uncomfortable around those people. And if you've ever known somebody like that, and then you saw some of their flaw, immediately they become more relatable. They become somebody that you can connect to. They become somebody that you can, you can joke with and you feel more comfortable around because perfect is not attractive, right? Real is attractive. And, you know, when people start saying, oh man, I screwed this up. Well, we're like, oh yeah, no, I've been there, done that. And I can relate to that. Now all of a sudden I feel like you're a human being and not a robot. And most people prefer to interact with human beings. Yeah. I agree. Well, I will just leave us on the perfect conversation with our last episode was called perfect is a lie. Isn't that right? Oh, wow. I <laughs> love Sarah that. and I were like, every two seconds, we're like, mind blow. We just realized <laughs> something. So this is very validating. I love that. Yes. Well, let's move on to the final category. Um, and I believe it's about the people who remove the positives. They're positive yeah. removers, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, the avoider, the control freak, and the self-protector. Um, people who basically prevent themselves from engaging in situations, interactions, relationships, whatever it may be that could be positive things, often due to fear, insecurity, anxiety, all of those things that we talked about earlier. The control freak one um, kind of comes to mind more. Not this, I don't know, maybe I'm a control freak, but I might be more of a self-protector, but I see control freak. It's uh-huh. easy to see control freaks. Yeah. It's yeah. not as easy to see avoiders because they're avoiding. They don't want to uh-huh. be seen. Exactly. And some protectors are like going within or whatever, but those control freaks out there can't stand them. They're trying to like, yeah, that's, you know, (laughs) right. Yeah. So, yeah, the control freak is, is often rooted in anxiety, right? This is somebody who just never wants to be um, caught off guard, never wants to be surprised. They want to be prepared for every situation and every interaction. 
so that they feel more comfortable. And so they, they avoid situations where they don't have that control or they're fearful of situations where they can't, they can't be prepared. And obviously that is going to, you know, limit their growth opportunities, limit their social opportunities, limit their abilities to connect because they're avoiding situations where they can't be in control. Um, and the self-protector actually is, is similar in terms of avoidance, but it's less about control and more about protection, right? The self-protector is that person who's covered in that metaphorical armor, right? They're always on the defense. Um, and so they usually it's more about relationships and they never let people get too close to them. They never let um, their relationships have any real depth or emotionality because they're, they're afraid of getting hurt usually because they've been hurt in the past and this is the way that they've responded to that. So they don't ever let themselves be vulnerable. They don't ever let themselves be exposed. And then again, obviously that, that limits or removes a lot of potential positives from their lives because they never get to experience all of those positives associated with having depth in a relationship. That's good stuff here. <laughs> We've got, I think everyone listening can apply multiple um, profiles to themselves. I was just thinking, I was like, oh, I think all of these apply. To <laughs> like, Nine. It's, it's just so you know, that's not uncommon, right? And yeah. some people will go through the list and say like, oh, that one is totally me. And other people will go like, I do a little bit of that and I do a little bit of that. And maybe I do that in these types of situations and I do this and that type of situation. That can be very common. Well, and you yeah. often also compare to the people around you, like significant others. And you're like, well, he's this, I'm not, I'm this, you know, right. when really you might be both. Um, so I think we should move on to what are some tactics that we can do to stop the bullshit? Well, stop can I ask sabotage? Can I, I want to ask the question first though, before we do that. Yeah. Are, what are some indications, like how, if, besides you saying that essentially everyone self-sabotages. Um, so being but, human is the indicator there, right? Yeah. <laughs> so if you're listening, you self-sabotage, yeah. but, but you know, you said there are variations of it, right? So when it becomes a problem, how would you sort of know that your self-sabotaging is problematic? Are there indicators? Well, it's a hard thing to know without knowing what your goals are, without knowing what you want, right? So if, if your goal is to get a promotion or your goal is to run a marathon and you're very clear on what that goal is, then you can start looking at your behavior and, and questioning all the time, questioning, is this helping me move towards that or moving me further away from it? by skipping this training session? Is that moving me further from it or closer to it? By not applying for this job, is it moving me closer to it or further from it? And having that question be a continual thing in your head, almost on a loop, where everything you do, everything you think, everything you engage in or don't engage in, you're asking yourself, is this moving me towards that or moving me further away from it? Because if you can start asking yourself that question, then you can start to see how your behaviors are self-sabotaging. If you can say, all right, two or three times a week, I'm talking myself out of my workout or I'm, I'm dumbing it down and not doing what I know I need to do and, you know, basically doing a walk or doing half of my run or, you know, not lifting as heavy as I know I can because I feel a little tired. And I'm seeing that happen a lot. 
okay, now I need to look at the fact that this is probably some form of self-sabotage and figure out what I need to do about it. But it starts by understanding your goals and then asking yourself if your behavior is helping you achieve them or moving you further away from them. And is there ever a point at which you also then examine your goal too? Like, what if, are there unrealistic goals or goals that like don't, you know, as women, right, we all want to lose weight, but do you really want to lose weight or do you think you should and you don't? Well, that's a really, really good point. And this is where I look at two things. When I look at a concept, I call the goals of your goals. Um, So for example, you know, a lot of women that I work with, their goal is to lose weight. But I always tell them that that's not the real goal. The goal is whatever they think they're going to get as a result of losing that weight. And that's what I call the goals of your goals. So if your goal is to lose 50 pounds and we fast forward into the future and you've lost 50 pounds, now what's changed in your life? What do you think is better? What have you achieved? What is it that you want? And those really are the goals. And so understanding that can really help you understand what it is you're trying to achieve, why you're trying to achieve it, and what fears may be tied into that. But on the other side of that, when you talked about goals and and the reality of it, you know, I I never want to say to somebody, that goal is too big, that goal is too lofty. But I do think there's a lot of value in breaking it down into smaller, more achievable goals. If somebody who's never run before comes to you and says, I want to run a marathon, you may say, okay, well, why don't we start by training you for a 5K? And see how you do with that. We'll work up to that. It'll be a wonderful goal. You'll feel amazing. And then maybe after that, we'll do a 10K. And then maybe after that, we'll train for a half. And, you know, kind of keep building in those things so that they're, one, having goals that are more attainable in the moment, but also goals that are more short-term so that they tie in, they, they get those wins, right? They keep having opportunities to say, I succeeded, as opposed to saying, here I am never running before, and here's a marathon right? Here I am wanting to lose 50 pounds. There's 50 pounds. But what if I said, okay, well, let me focus on losing five. And when I lose five, I feel awesome. I'm proud of myself. I've achieved something. I get to pat myself on the back. And now I feel great going into losing the next five pounds, as opposed to saying, well, I'm still so far away from 50 pounds. And, you know, so breaking those goals down into kind of the goals of those goals, but also more attainable short-term goals so that you build in those wins and you get to kind of build on things over time. Yeah. That makes so much sense. And I think it fits into some of what you're talking about is just even the basic components of goal setting, goal achieving, and and we're not always well-versed in what that is. And then also even understanding like, what are the goals that we want for ourselves versus what society wants for ourselves? Maybe what our parents want or our spouses. And like, I found if it's something I really want, I can often get there. You know, there's less self-sabotage happening at Mm -hmm. times versus, you know, and that, that doesn't always apply, but you know what I'm, I think there is something to be said too, for like truly understanding, is this something that I want? I personally want, and I'm willing to put in the effort, you know, and then, and then how do I get there? Well, yeah, as opposed to a goal that's maybe more about society or more about your parents or something else, if it's about them, it's, it's not going to be as intrinsically motivating, right? You're not going to have that real drive in you. And that's where identifying the goals of your goal really come into play, because then you can really drill down and say, what is this about? And who is this for? Right. Right. Well, and then if you understand the goal of your goal, 
then once you get there, because it was just related to weight loss specifically, right? So probably it's not often the weight loss. It's more, I want to look better. I want to feel better. I want society to view me better, those Uh kinds of things. But what if there's other ways to get there besides 50 pounds, right? Exactly. How do I get, how do I get there? And then if I really understand where I want to get, maybe it's not so scary once I get there, right? Like once Mm -hmm. you you mentioned that with the the attainment piece, so yeah, it's yeah, sort of you like take the fear out of understanding. Like, what are we really working towards here? It's not exactly. just surface conversation. So yeah, yeah, and absolutely. I could talk about that forever. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, Me too. I, I'm having the best <laughs> counseling session. This is amazing because I'm also in like transition here. So I got to yeah. figure out what's the goal of my goal. Then yeah. I can work towards it. Um, well, you were asking a question though. So what are some tips? And cause I think we only have a few more minutes left with, um, with Candace here. So were there, you wanted to know how we, some yeah. tips. And tricks, right? Yeah. What are, what are some of the things we can do to change our patterns and our habits? Well, I think we've talked about a few of them already, just kind of in, in yes. the context of our conversation, right? We've talked about changing how you approach goals and looking more in depth We've talked about changing your approach to things and we were talking about procrastination earlier and um, starting with the hardest thing first or, you know, setting earlier deadlines for yourself, which is tied into a concept that's called opposite action, which is the idea of responding with the exact opposite of what your self-sabotage is telling you to do, right? Like the assumer who assumes I'm not going to have fun at the party and therefore I shouldn't go. The exact opposite of that behavior is to go and talk to everybody, right? And be super dynamic and engaging and use it as an opportunity to challenge those thoughts and build evidence, right? Because most of those people are not engaging in behavior based on evidence. They're engaging in behavior based on lack of evidence. And so the more you can engage in behavior that gives you evidence to fight those thoughts and prove them wrong, the more likely you are to overcome them. But Oh, I love this opposite action uh-huh. um, based on just if anyone listening is in my generation, they'll get this Costanza. Do you remember <laughs> the Seinfeld when Costanza decided to do the exact opposite of what he would always do? And he uh-huh. everything worked for him like he won <laughs> in every way. Uh-huh. But, you know, it takes like either I don't give a shit anymore attitude. I'm just going to do the opposite or it takes total courage to yes. go there. Yes. And the courage piece is an important thing to look at because we talked about the fact that a lot of this stuff is rooted in fears. So a lot of the process is about facing those fears. And again, by looking at the goals of your goal, you can kind of start to uncover some of that, but really looking at what am I scared of, right? If, if I were to achieve this, why might that be a problem for me? What might be some negative things that might come into play as a result of achieving that. And let me look at those fears and then slowly, right, in, in, in kind of succession, let me start facing those fears in really small doses, right? Again, if, if your fear is about going to that party, maybe you say, I'll go for five minutes and talk to one person. And that's what I'm going to do. Or maybe I'll go with a friend. I'll bring a buddy, right, so that I feel a little safer. And how can I gradually face those fears so that I start to overcome them. So they start to take the power away from them so that these things overall aren't so scary and I'm more comfortable exposing myself to them. Um, and then again, we talked about this earlier too, about the idea of confidence building and how 
self-esteem and self-worth is so tied into so many of these self-sabotage styles. If you don't believe you're capable, if you don't believe you're worthy, you don't believe you're deserving, self-sabotage is going to be a natural response to that. So the more you can work on you know, believing in yourself, reminding yourself how amazing you are, how capable you are, looking at what you have to offer the world, what you've done, right? Finding that evidence to support your value and your contribution and really starting to believe in yourself more and build your confidence, the more that confidence is going to fight the tendency to self-sabotage. So that's a huge part of working on this is just working on believing in yourself. You know, we could go on and on, but you've got, you've got clients, you have people who need your help today. (laughs) Um, You've already helped thousands of women just through coming on this podcast. And we so appreciate you at the end of every show, Sarah and I do a few takeaways and we both been like frantically writing. I mean, oh, that's at least awesome. I have it. I've seen Sarah. Um, well, like, I've seen if the you top of her. If you look down, it's notes. I'm like, oh my, there. I'm like, uh, running but I wrote I Oh my gosh. So do you want to do them, Sarah? You want to start? Well, you know what, Nicole? I was just, I was sitting here thinking and I was like, I don't think I can do this. I think we have to, well, I do have courage, one. Sarah, courage. <laughs> you can do it. Well, I think this idea of starting with the hardest thing first. Mm. See, I'm in this. Okay, now I'm just going to have to go through them, Nicole. So I can't Do just it. say one. Do it. Starting with the hardest first and getting that out of the way. I think that's a great, um, a great takeaway. Um, I think understanding the goals of your goal. So what are you really trying to accomplish behind your goal is huge. And then also looking at how you're trying to get to your goal is it broken down in smaller steps? How are you getting there? And really just spending some time understanding that. Okay. And then one more thing. So <laughs> I love that you asked, uh, you said, get comfortable with um, asking yourself, is this behavior moving me closer to or further away from my goal? Like this kind of constant examination of your actual behaviors and is it getting me where, where I want to be? But mainly I was going to say, I think, um, there's so much here. Your book explains so much of this, right? Yeah. Yeah. All, pretty much everything we talked about is, is in there somewhere. Okay. <laughs> so Nicole, let's, yeah, let's tell people where, yeah, yeah, where can they find it and where can they follow you? Um, well, any, anybody who buys books probably knows where to find it. Um, Amazon, um, it's the self-sabotage behavior workbook. Um, you can also find it on either of my websites at uh, meonlybetter.com or theweightlosstherapist.com. Awesome. Um, and you can contact me there. I have a bunch of DIY programs on the sites and all that fun stuff. And links to those websites and to buy the book are below. So check it out. Yes. Awesome, awesome day, guys. This was amazing. Yeah. Goodness, thank you so much. This is- thank you guys so much. It was great chatting with you. I love your enthusiasm. It's early (laughs) in the day, but this was not the hardest thing I'm going to do this day. No, this was the easy thing. This was the fun part. So thanks so much, Candice. We are just so, so honored to have you on the show. Thank you guys so much. It was great. All right. Have a good one. You too.